Hello, and welcome to Exploring Global Problems, a podcast where we talk to academics from Swansea University whose groundbreaking research is tackling global challenges from health innovation to sustainable futures and the environment, from digital technologies to clean energy. My name is Sam Blacksland, and today I'm joined by Dr. Ian Mabbitt, Associate Professor of Chemistry at Swansea University. His research explores clean energy generation, storage, and its use. In particular, he is focused on low-cost printable solar energy and creating buildings that act as energy hubs. Ian, welcome to Exploring Global Problems. It's good to see you. Thank you very much. Good to be here. To begin with, could you just give us an overview of your research and its associated global challenges? Sure. So uh, a lot of what we'll talk about today is uh, around a project called Sunrise. So Sunrise is uh, funded through the Global Challenges Research Fund. And this explores how we can revolutionize solar energy in India, um, but in particular through using buildings that generate, store and use renewable energy. Um, the buildings themselves are uh, the end of the story in a sense, but in the pipeline up to that, we've got a lot of researchers across institutions in the UK and in India who are developing fundamental science, so solar cells that can be printed in the same way that we would make a t-shirt, for example, um, to bring down the cost of production and make that available more readily to people across India. We could definitely unpack all of that, and that's a huge topic. But just to go right back to the fundamentals and about you know renewable energy, why do certain countries, particularly with you know growing populations, why is it uh, sensible or practical for for them to invest in you know clean energy, renewable energy? I think one of the big issues, if we again, if we take India as an example, um, it's uh, there's a big effort to get 300 million people who currently don't have access to power, um, 24/7 reliable access. Now, one of the issues with that is that if we were to do that by burning fossil fuels, we would increase the demand on fossil fuels. I mean, we have to bear in mind 300 million people is substantially larger than the entire population of the UK. So if they started to burn fossil fuels, the, uh, the CO2 impact would be immense. So what we have in places uh, across the global south is an opportunity to leapfrog fossil fuel production so that we can move into clean energy futures, which lower the impact while still giving people a, an increased quality of life and also productivity to whatever it is that they do. Yeah, because when we talk about, for example, this country's carbon emissions, it pales into complete insignificance, doesn't it, when compared to what people often cite, India and China. So this is part of your work. It certainly can, yeah, and 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 that's true. So again, you know, it's just comparing the population. So 1.2 billion people in India, 65 million people in, in the UK. And again, going right back down to the, the fundamentals, how would you define renewable energy? What is it? Well, renewable energy is is ultimately energy that uh, that comes from uh, a source which is sustainable. So ultimately, you know, we often cite the fact that most energy comes from the sun one way or another. Um, it can be locked up in, in sources such as fossil fuels or dead dinosaurs, as I like to call them. <laughs> um, and we can release that energy by burning them. But once we've done that, it takes millions of years to restock that energy. You take things like solar power, uh, wind. These are using sources that are available to us every day. And we know that every day uh, enough solar energy falls on the sun to power us for 27 years. But we just have to get a bit smarter at how we use that. 
So as I say, ultimately, renewable energy is just uh, a form which we can use day in, day out without having to worry that we're going to run out of reserves. Uh, and a bonus to that when we talk about clean renewable energy is that we're attempting not to uh, release greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, which, which give us air quality issues as well. So there's obviously lots of advantages to using uh, these renewable energy sources. What are the drawbacks and disadvantages? Some of them are a bit unreliable, aren't they? I mean, that can be an issue. So, of course, um, solar energy works when the sun shines and, uh, and wind energy works when the wind blows. So we have to think about how we store energy. And that's probably one of the key enablers. Uh, and you see a lot of effort in, in research environments at the moment focusing on storage. I often tell people that there are lots of ways, there's always been an energy storage issue. Um, the difference is that uh, if you're storing with fossil fuels, you tend to store it before you convert to electricity. Um, it's a shift in mindset to think about how we store electricity once it's been converted. To explain that a little bit more, mm. if you've got a, a petrol tank or a gas tank or you know, a gas bottle or a coal store, you are storing energy. You're just storing it before conversion. It's more challenging to store it once it's been converted. And the conversion bit, for example, with gas or coal or oil would be when you burn it there and there, yeah? Burning it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and something like solar and wind, obviously the, the wind is blowing or the sun is being beamed down. Is there a, a, one of these sources that's particularly hard to store? Is it solar energy? Um, I think ultimately they, it comes down to the same issue. So what we're trying to do in, in, in those situations is store after they've been converted to electricity. So, you know, sun falls on a solar panel, um, we can generate electrons, we can use them uh, right there and then as we need them. But if we want to use them when the sun goes out, we need to store them possibly in batteries, fuel cells and other storage methods. And I'm sure we'll discuss this in much more detail as, as things go along. But you've connected your research with um, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, haven't you? Can you tell us a bit more about that? Certainly, yeah. So the uh, the primary uh, goal that um, that we aim to tackle is Sustainable Development Goal Seven, which is about access to affordable and clean energy. However, I think whenever you deal with uh, with one of these things, you, you start to get into a, a nexus or a connection between other problems. So, whilst the primary target is uh, is around affordable, clean energy and access to it. We will also touch on things like um, climate action. We look at how we can develop technologies in a way that uh, that enable businesses to grow around an area so that we can look at economic growth. Um, and also we touch on things like water, sanitation and food because, as I say, all of these problems are interconnected. So ultimately, if we consider the Sustainable Development Goals as uh, as a target that that we can all set ourselves, impact on one quite often has impact across many of the others as well. So it's not just goal seven in isolation. Absolutely not. No, and I, and I think that that's an important thing to consider whenever people look at global challenges is seeing that sort of bigger picture of of what we're trying to um, uh, to work towards. If you'd like to visit us and find out more about studying at Swansea University, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash open days to book your place. Now, I've heard that all of this started, or your research at least started, 
uh, from watching paint dry. <laughs> Indeed, yep. <laughs> it is true. It made me uh, quite uh, uh, quite the uh, the bore around my friends <laughs> at one point, where I spent a, a large part of my life looking at uh, looking at paint drying. But that is absolutely true. Yeah. So um, early early part of my career was uh, as a chemist. I um, I moved into well, I actually did a, a year in industry as part of my chemistry degree. And that was quite interesting for me because uh, in that case, it was actually around sandpaper, even before paint. So watching how we develop resins for sandpaper. And I had that kind of moment where everything changed for me, where I realized that if that much thought goes into something that's so easy to overlook, what about everything else that's around us? Um, so that then uh, led me into a curiosity that, uh, that took me to uh, a doctoral program in uh, materials engineering. And that was focused on uh, increasing the, the throughput of a, of a paint line um, for uh, the local steel industry. What's the throughput? Sorry. So that's um, essentially one of the, uh, the critical things for our industrial partners is how much material that they can make in a, in a given time. Um, the more material that they can make, um, the more products that uh, that get out into the market. So a lot of my work has been around how we move from laboratory-based science into doing things at a big scale, and and I think that's that's what excites me. So tell us a little bit more about your doctoral work. Then, what did that involve doing on a day-to-day basis? Okay, so um, essentially, I was um, I was sponsored by um, BASF and. Uh, Chorus as they were then, which is now Tata Steel, so our, our local steelworks, and um, they'd invested in a um, in a production line that uses um, a, a particular wavelength of light, so near infrared to dry paint. Um, as you know, it always amuses me when I I, I can talk for hours about uh, drying paint, but I'll assure the listeners I promise I won't do that right now. Um, but but essentially, um, we can use this to um, to dry paint quicker, and understanding the fundamental science of how that works has enabled us to um, to help them to produce more material. But it's also looked enabled us to look at other areas where that's important. So yeah, in what way? So there's a, a twist in the tail of uh, of my doctoral. Uh, work, which was that, as I say, ultimately we were looking at taking a process that takes 30 seconds uh, in a traditional uh, paint curing oven down to around about seven seconds so that we could do everything a lot quicker. Um, But in understanding how that worked, looking at how the material absorbs light, what that does when it does absorb light, we we were able to understand that we could apply the same sort of idea into solar energy so now we can make solar cells a lot quicker than we could in the past um, the big example that we discovered during my doctoral project with, um, with people who I still collaborate to uh, to this day actually on sunrise was that um, there was a 30 minute um, heating step that that took a one of the materials that we used to make solar cells up to 500 degrees Celsius. So quite a high temperature step. Um, and that was to effectively to remove all of the, uh, the bits of, of material that we didn't need there and to create the, a kind of a network structure which we needed to capture light. Um, using the findings from 
the paint drying work. I still say that with a little chuckle. Hmm. Um, we were actually able to take that 30 minute step down to 13 seconds. Wow. And then that enables us to, um, uh, to produce solar cells faster, cheaper, and uh, with lower, I'm going to say capital expenditure. But what I mean by that is um, the, uh, the startup costs, if you wanted to enter into the solar market, drop substantially if you're able to do things quicker and with simpler equipment. And when you say produce solar cells, I mean, what is the practical production of that like? How does it happen? Okay, so the types of technologies that um, that we work on in in Swansea are a little bit different to the sorts of uh, solar cells that um, that most people will see out and about at the moment. You know, solar has taken off in a big way globally, so you see lots of silicon solar cells. These are produced in big sort of semiconductor processing factories. Uh, what we do is is much closer to painting, so um, and and coating effectively. So we would put down um, a, a layer of a liquid, and then we dry that liquid off, uh, which enables us to create a, a, a sort of a, a porous, so almost a, a sort of a, a spongy sort of surface, which captures light, and then. Uh, Within that, we get a, a, a little bit of, uh, of chemistry and physics that goes on um, to enable us to turn that light into uh, electrons, which we can use for powering circuits or, or putting into a battery to store for later use. Just in basic terms, what is that chemistry and physics that's happening there? <laughs> it's um, I'm trying to think of a, of a simple way of describing it. Um, it's uh, essentially the, um, uh, the material that we put down is a semiconductor. It's a photocatalyst, mm. um, and what it will do is uh, is effectively exhibits a photoelectric effect. So it absorbs um, photons that are incident on it, and that releases electrons from the, the structure of the material. They go off into a circuit. We have um, a few other chemical processes as the uh, as the electrons re-enter. Um, so we get some uh, some reduction in oxidation chemistry that goes on, uh, so that we can recombine the electrons with the original material, and then that allows us to do the whole cycle again. So that's why it's renewable. And these printed cells, this is obviously very different to what I think of when I hear solar cells, which is those things that people put on the roofs of their houses. Absolutely, yeah. So these things are... If we go back to another connection, I guess, between paint and, uh, and solar cells, um, the kind of original vision for this was that the painted materials that I was making during my doctorate, their eventual application was typically on, uh, on the roofing and cladding of industrial buildings. So, you know, you go to a supermarket, they're usually um, metal-clad buildings which are pre-painted in a factory. Shot and Steelworks up in North Wales produces about 200 million square metres of pre-painted material. Um, it tends to be double-layered, so it ends up as being 100, square me 100 million square metres of um, roofing and cladding material each year. And that is a vast amount. That's just in the UK. So our aim at that stage was to, we were effectively a corrosion and coatings group. We were looking to you know, produce this stuff at high quality with, uh, with Tata and then 
um, effectively guaranteed against corrosion or against something called photodegradation for up to 40 years. Now, photodegradation happens when paint absorbs light. Um, within the structure of the paint, we have these little semiconductors. We use them as pigments, so titanium dioxide being the, uh, the key one. And when electrons get released from that, they damage the coating around it, so it all strips off. So the thought process was, well, actually, we're producing 100 million square meters of this stuff, and we're spending most of our lives trying to stop sunlight from, uh, from destroying it. Can't we actually just use the sunlight in a more productive way? So that's the, the change in thought. So if you go to coating and printing processes, the eventual aim would be that you don't paint steel anymore, but you coat it entirely with, with solar photovoltaics. And then that means that the low-cost energy material uh, is actually abundant around us because all of the fabric of all buildings could eventually end up producing energy. Wow. Um, you've talked about uh, patenting the NIR heating of solar cells. Now, is that related to what you're talking about here, or is that something separate again? No, that's that's the uh, that's a similar um, process. So, so ultimately, the um, the NIR is the near infrared um, wavelengths of light, okay. and these are used to um, as I say to rapidly process the uh, uh, the solar materials, but also can dry paint. If you'd like to find out more about our research at Swansea University, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash research. Now, I know just uh, with my layman's hat on that one of the critiques of renewable energy is that it's often very expensive. And what you're doing sounds like it could potentially be expensive, is it? Um, I think everything's expensive at first. I think that's, that's sure. one of the keys. Um, but, uh, but ultimately... The aim with this is to break down some of the barriers of getting into this kind of work. So I think an eventual aim for something like uh, coatable solar cells would be that, particularly if we're looking at, at the global south, is to enable low-cost materials to be used. Now, there's a difficult economic argument to be made because the cost of solar is coming down quite a lot as it is. And in fact, silicon is getting cheaper and cheaper. But there are still barriers uh, in terms of the upfront costs to setting up uh, you know, a solar factory. And our aim is to effectively move around that. So we want to be able to create technologies which are easy to produce locally. And also, there becomes a little bit of a playoff. And this was quite difficult in the early days for uh, for a chemist and a, and a material scientist to begin to think about because in a research environment, we tend to focus on things like efficiency. Everything we want to do is about making the most efficient solar cell. But actually, we have to think about if there are playoffs where we can use a low-cost, abundant material or a waste material. And some of my colleagues within the Sunrise Network are, are doing just that, so using um, waste materials as part of the kind of the ingredients of our solar cell. They may not be as efficient as using the very, very best materials, but it's dealing with a waste problem and it's, and it's locally sourced. So I think at the moment, cost is still an issue, but um, the aim of this research is to bring down those costs 
but also to enable more people to get active in the field. I said wow a minute ago because I was genuinely surprised at this idea that you can coat buildings in a material that can generate and store energy. Now, what's the potential for this sort of technology? Because it sounds to me like it could be huge. Absolutely, yeah. I think potential is massive. Um, there are lots of things that we have to consider. Um, so, because when you when you hear a, a statement like that, the, one of the first things which will spring to anyone's mind is, "Well, why aren't we doing it now?" Yeah. And um, and I think that uh, the, there are still some challenges, um, which is good for me as a researcher. <laughs> um, one of the issues that we get is that the uh, we have to work on things like the lifetime to ensure that they last as long as uh, as we would need. Um, effectively, in the solar industry, we want to be able to guarantee things for 25 years. Um, so there are still some challenges around that. Um, but um, ultimately, I can see that there are ways of um, of taking slow steps towards doing this. So. On the Swansea University campus, for example, on the Bay campus, we have um, two example buildings. We have um, the uh, the active classroom and uh, the active office. Now, these are buildings that are going to take the sort of the baby steps towards that future. So on those buildings, we have um, uh, a roof material from um, a company called um, BIPV Co Limited. And BIPV was a was a spin out of of uh, Swansea University with with Tata originally, uh, and what this does is it it produces a steel sheet which has a very thin film solar bonded onto it, and that means that the look of the building is very different. It, it just looks like a steel roof, mm. but it's not quite where we want to be just yet. We still need to develop the coating technologies, but that will help to get the market to understand the potential. The next thing that, that we do, and there's a lot of this within the Sunrise project, is to look at the existing silicon market and then develop the, um, uh, the sort of printable techniques. So one of our collaborators, um, Professor Henry Snaith in Oxford, um, developed a, uh, a technology called the Perovskite solar cell. Um, and his work at the moment is focused on what we call tandem cells. So tandem cells is where we coat one type of um, photovoltaic technology on top of another one so that we can boost the, um, uh, the efficiency of both of them. This works alongside silicon, and the eventual sort of aim would be to almost bring the two together. So if you could have those flexible coatings that we're printing on top of, um, of silicon and just going directly onto a roof material, that would be the, the the perfect solution, and I think that when we're at the stage where that is uh, viable and uh, cost effective and can be guaranteed for long enough in in uh, exterior exposure, then I think we'll see a massive uptake. And I think at that point, there is very little limit to how far you would go. I think it would be crazy to put up a new building without having those sorts of materials on them. You've mentioned the Sunrise Project a few times. Do you want to just give us a bit of context to that and a bit of background information? I mean, when did it begin, for example? Okay, yeah, so the Sunrise Project is um, it's two years old now. Um, and this was a bringing together of, uh, of a lot of interesting groups who were already beginning to work together. 
um, around solar energy. So we have um, a specific innovation and knowledge center in, in Swansea. So that's the, um, that's the kind of project that, uh, that developed the active classroom and, uh, and the active office. So that's focused on essentially the things that we've talked about um, just now where, where we look at uh, how we can take things from a lab into a sort of a, a production and then demonstrate on a building. But we do that in a UK context. At the same time, so that's been running since about uh, 2010, I should say. Um, around about the same time in 2010, um, there was a consortia formed of Indian academic partners and UK academic partners. And they were focused on essentially the, the, the science of solar cells. And what Sunrise did um, uh, two years ago, so back in 2017, um, was to bring those two things together in a more meaningful way. So this was um, taking five UK university partners, seven Indian university partners, um, and building on their science so that we can move forward to demonstrating buildings in India. And it's quite a, a wide-ranging project because we're doing everything from the, the fundamental photochemistry and the fundamental photophysics to develop new cells through to how we can actually make those uh, in a production environment, uh, through to what that means for a building. So it's a large, large project with lots of different skill sets involved in it. Going back to the details of the research then, you've talked about uh, microgrids. Um, well, firstly, can you explain what they are? And um, you've also talked about energy hubs. I assume the two are related. Yeah. They're Kind of two two sides of the same coin in a sense, but um, but I think that this is really um, about contextual uh, contextualizing energy, particularly in places like India. So, you know, I mentioned earlier um, the the vast number of people who don't have access to um, reliable twenty four seven power in in India. There are various approaches that you could take to um, to try and connect them. The traditional approach, of course, would be a fossil fuel burning uh, powered generation center and then, you know, a, a national grid. So a little bit like uh, what, what we've got here where everybody's sort of grid connected. That would be one approach. Now, there is an ambition and, and again, I love working in India because the Indian government are so ambitious on these things. And there's a real passion for solar in India at the moment, but one approach to doing the interconnection of building of, of um, villages and, and communities would be to essentially just replace the, um, the big power generator, the big fossil fuel burning Mount Doom style uh, um, sort of uh, uh, factory uh, with a solar farm. And that's good you know it's it's clean energy but then you're still reliant on being connected up to a massive national grid mm. and there are challenges with transmitting power that far um particularly over a, you know a, a range of of climates and geographies as you as you get across india so the micro hub um sorry the uh, the energy hub or the micro grid uh, the idea there is that you generate locally and you store locally, and then you use locally, 
and you may want to interconnect those things. So it's essentially, instead of having a massive, massive national grid, we could have a village which looks after its own energy needs. So you have everything on site from your generation through to your storage and your distribution to local homes, local community buildings, or anything else that you need power for. Um, and personally, I think that that makes quite a lot of sense in the context of, of a place like India because of the challenges of, um, of running a grid. However, you can still, so that's why we call them microgrids. Mm. It's like a, a miniature grid based around a, a small community. We could do it on a, on a university campus, for example, and that could be its own little microgrid. Don't these microgrids have to still be connected then to a backup larger generator, even a Mount Doom style <laughs> you know, factory, like you say, just in case they do fail or go offline? They, they can, and there are, there are ways of doing that. So um, one thing that you could do is you could interconnect all of the microgrids. Now, that sounds complicated. Um, Isn't that just the grid? That is just the grid, but, but there is a slight difference in that um, all that you're doing there is that you are you know, effectively exporting any excess that you've got okay. or importing, and you're doing that at, um, at sort of much lower levels, so the infrastructure doesn't have to be as, uh, as hefty, I guess, as you would for a national grid. But there are other options as well. And you can have backup um, locally. So within the Sunrise project, we do actually have work packages based around things like biomass conversion. Now, again, that's effectively using waste. Um, could be agricultural waste. Could be municipal waste, so rubbish and bits and pieces. Could actually be human waste, but that's another story. And uh, we can use that as, uh, as the fuel, effectively, that powers a backup generator. And then that can ensure some level of reliability. Um, in fact, in many ways, probably more reliable in the future than, uh, than a fossil fuels reliance, because you do get energy security and issues around uh, fossil fuels. So if you're not a, a country which produces many fossil fuels, you're reliant on import and what happens if something stops the import. Mm. So actually, if you can use your own waste as your backup, it's like it could potentially be more reliable. Can biomass mean things like wood pellets as well, or is that something different? It can mean wood pellets um, and quite often does. We have to be sometimes a little bit careful with, um, uh, with wood pellets in, in certain contexts because one thing that we certainly don't want to encourage is any deforestation um, for power. But where, you know, where there's excess wood or, as I say, wood pellets made out of uh, sawdust waste, that kind of stuff, then there's certainly uh, application there. If you're a teacher and you'd like our help with talking about this topic in the classroom, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash teachers for more information. What would you say to people who might be a little bit critical of this and say, you know, these microgrids, sometimes based on, often based on solar energy, are going to be for now at least relatively expensive, relatively unreliable, and perhaps these people deserve just to have their Mount Doom fossil fueled power station giving them reliable, cheap energy? I think, you know, it, 
we have to we have to be fair and uh, and we have to acknowledge uh, some of those some of those concerns um however i think that um the relative expense in the early days will be um mitigated in future because lots of these uh, things are are based on economies of scale so to say solar is is pretty much at the moment just using silicon is is probably one of the cheapest forms of energy at the moment believe it or not um we have to project into the future what might happen with fossil fuel prices um so there will become a tipping point but one thing which we do have to be absolutely clear on is that nothing that we would do in a village would ever be um would ever be too experimental you know um because we we're, we're dealing with uh, with human lives at that point then absolutely everything that goes out there has to be reliable but the the biggest counter to anyone who um who would argue that the continuation of fossil fuels is you know a, a fairer way of doing things is that actually in the in the long run it's people's health will deteriorate and is deteriorating i can um give a good example actually of um last couple of times that i've been over in india um so i'm a, i'm an iphone user and uh, when i look at the front of my iphone it gives me the day's weather wherever i am and you know being from the uk pretty used to seeing cloudy being from swansea in particular in, yeah definitely yeah you know cloudy rainy very occasionally we get sunny spells um but the last time i was in mumbai my phone said that the weather conditions were smoke and the last time i was in new delhi the uh, the weather conditions were unhealthy and by smoke they mean smog they do yeah yeah so you know that was quite uh, i actually screenshotted it because i thought that's something that you don't see every day and it reminds us of uh, of the importance actually of moving away from um from fossil fuels we're talking of mumbai how often do you get to go to india or other countries indeed um india usually once or twice a year um so we would tend to have an all partner meeting over there and um as i say i um i do travel quite a lot with work as well so i have some projects in um south africa um last few years probably been to the states at least once a year so um so yeah it's a it's an interesting one you do uh, you do travel a lot with this kind of work and where's your favorite place to travel to ah uh, no that's a real tough question actually um everywhere's so different for so many reasons but um but i do absolutely love india you must have a lot of stories or yeah you know, from your experiences of india in particular yeah i mean um we've we've had some some good uh, some good experiences in india um i mean it's a fascinating fascinating country uh one thing which i kind of struggled with initially of course was um there is a uh, uh, quite a big gap between um the rich and the poor but it's not necessarily a uh, a, a geographical gap so effectively you can walk out of one building uh into a street and see absolute polar opposites in in terms of uh, people's livelihoods um so 
Yeah, it's, it's a it's a fascinating country, but one of the things which I think is is quite amazing with India and and um, a few of my colleagues, we we now um, we now have a little bit of a motto, which is, and I think we we can all apply this back home, which is have a plan but be flexible. And this comes down to the kind of organised chaos that you see everywhere, um, and not least uh, when traveling particularly in the big cities so if we take mumbai as an example um the traffic system there is unbelievable when uh, uh, when you're used to um uk roads and uk gridlock actually as well because you see these lanes which you know to me they look like there's only supposed to be three cars wide yet somehow you can definitely fit six cars for it and you can squeeze a, a you know a, a two wheeler, so a motorbike through with a with a whole family on it. <laughs> um, but amazingly, it works. And you know we've we've reflected on this quite a lot. And uh, I think one of the things which I've realised is that actually, if you stuck a load of traffic lights and calming measures and things in, it wouldn't work anymore. And that's something that we have to bear in mind with the with the context as we as we look around the world, is that things work differently but actually on the whole they quite often work um <laughs> what about the optics here of somebody uh researching renewable energy jumping on a airplane and going all over the world quite a lot for meetings that could be conducted remotely i was looking forward to that one because it is it is actually something which i do uh, grapple with quite a lot um and it is a very very important point so you know, my carbon, my personal carbon footprint is absolutely massive because of the amount of travel that I do. Um, so it is genuinely something which I think about a lot at night. I think, you know, how can we do these things? So I think that there's an interesting playoff in, in my mind on this stuff um, about the fact that sometimes when you're working in these kinds of environments, you, you really do need the context. Um, we try and do as many meetings as we can virtually. Uh, things like Zoom and WhatsApp have completely changed how we all work. And, you know, the world is a much, much smaller place uh, because of those things. So that certainly limits a lot of our travel. However, there is really no substitute for uh, visiting a village and understanding how people live in a, in a village in India. Um, and the thing which I find really important is that um i think that i've changed personally because of the things that i've seen on the ground now that then throws me into this sort of really difficult dilemma because actually when i talk to lots of people who really do care about uh, the environment and, and want to make the world a, a cleaner place most of them are quite well traveled so there is this this sort of strange, almost like catch twenty two. I think um, the the global citizen is probably the uh, the one most likely to spot the issues, but is also a major contributor. Um, what I do try and do now is, if I am traveling, you know, I would never just travel for a quick meeting. If I'm going to India, then the key is to pack in as much as you possibly can while you're there so that you can mitigate against future travel and you know you can achieve more for the carbon that you've expended getting there. The research that you've talked about has been applied or can be applied to water and sanitation issues as well, can't it? So can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, sure. So um, 
I've worked um, and still do work quite a bit with the um, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation around uh, uh, water, sanitation, and hygiene. And this is again, it's a fascinating topic and and quite a, a terrifying one when you when you get into the details of uh, the number of people globally who who don't have appropriate access to well toilets, effectively, um, and the knock on effects of that. So, if you take the sanitation issue. Um, more people, well, more children globally uh, die each year from uh, issues with diarrhea and poor sanitation than things like, um, you know, measles, uh, malaria, all of those things combined. Um, so it's a huge, huge issue. And in terms of the, uh, the technologies, um, some real challenges because you need to you're quite often in a water constrained area um and if you look at the uk infrastructure you know we're we're blessed here by having um uh, a sewage system a victorian sewage system i add which is massively inefficient and you know we use uh, gallons and gallons of water to flush away uh, our own human waste but actually that did m- uh, the introduction of things like uh, the the, uh, the sewage system that we've got did correspond to a massive jump in life expectancy in in, in uh, the UK, and there's no reason that we shouldn't be doing that overseas. So the technology link actually starts back with drying paint. Yeah, everything goes back to drying paint. See, it's not such a tedious topic after all. Um, well, I, I've read it relates to this lovely phrase which is not drying paint which is fecal sludge management indeed yes so <laughs> fecal sludge management it's uh, i'm, I'm uh, for your, your listeners i'm not going to say what that really means but it's it's drying something else um certainly anyone who's listening at breakfast time or just before lunch certainly won't want me to go into any detail we probably get the gist I yeah <laughs> so um so effectively, yeah, th- this all spans out of a conversation, and again, uh, you know, uh, another one where I was uh, where I was traveling. Um, but essentially, what we realise is that um, if you look at uh, fecal sludge, it can be up to ninety percent water. Now that gives us a lot of issues. You're in a water constrained area. Human waste has got sort of ninety percent water in it. We need to remove the water, and essentially kill all of the bugs that are in the uh, the sludge. Um, and we need to do that efficiently so that we can go on to use the uh, uh, the dried sludge for useful things. Now, by useful things, it's actually quite amazing what you can get out of uh, human waste. Um, there are projects within the Gates Foundation which turn um, sort of dried fecal sludge into a power source. Um, so effectively, you know, you can you can do something like a pyrolysis step, or um, or uh, effectively uh, other kinds of heating or combustion, and you can end up with power. You can end up with um, a biochar or a soil conditioner, which can help people grow more crop and better food. And if you've removed that uh, that sort of ninety percent moisture in a sensible way, you can actually recover uh, water, clean it up, and use it as drinking water. Now, my initial link to that was around making the uh, the drying step more efficient. But in reality, there's a lot that you can do if you've got excess energy from an active building. So, 
the sorts of things that we think about now are, you know, could we use a building uh, to drive sanitation? So you go into a community, the aim is initially to provide power, but can you deal with a waste issue that stops people um, coming into contact with, with pathogens or bugs that are going to make them sick? Um, and in doing so, can you increase the productivity of, um, of agricultural land uh, while simultaneously helping with the water burden. So, yeah, it's uh, it was quite an interesting world when I started to um, to think more about uh, uh, our own waste. One of the big areas that people talk about at the moment is the circular economy, and I'm I'm not sure if uh, if people have come across that phrase, but if they haven't, they certainly will soon. Uh, this is about moving to uh, resource efficiency in in everything that we produce. So. When we produce something, we should have the end of its life in uh, in our sites and think about how we can reuse it and and take steps to ensure that uh, that nothing effectively ends up in landfill. And I think that actually the sanitation projects are the ultimate circular economy because we should be applying it to our own body. So everything that we eat, we should think about what happens to the waste stream and whether we can get some value out of that as well. Mentioning the Gates Foundation there, uh, obviously that's a collaboration with a, a huge organisation. Sunrise is, a, a, a for an academic collaboration, a very large-scale one as well. But what about the collaborations that you've had with smaller organisations? I read something about the T-shirt manufacturers in Mexico, for example. Ah, yeah. So this is, um, so this is some of my, my colleagues within the Swansea part of Sunrise. So um, um, Professor Tristan Watson and uh, Dr. Adrian Walters and and their team um we've been talking for a little while about how we use screen printing so if you go into the the labs that we have in swansea we have quite a lot of screen printers of, of varying size and complexity but ultimately the concept of screen printing is is relatively simple um and uh, i think effectively there was a there was an area of, of thought around, well, you know, we're trying to show that um, that we can develop this low-cost way of, of producing solar cells. It started almost as a, as a bit of outreach, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, we used to go into uh, sort of school groups and show them that you could make a solar cell in a very simple way. But then um, a collaboration was forming around, this, again, the science of solar cells with, um, with the University of Mexico, um, my colleagues have, have been out there a couple of times now and run workshops both with school children who, you know, they, again, they demonstrate that these materials are printable. Um, and uh, again, collaborative re- research in the university. But then the next step was to, was to really, you know, really try and prove the concept. Can you go into a commercial T-shirt manufacturer and produce solar cells? And, uh, and that's the work that they've been doing over the last few years, and it and it turns out that you can. So, uh, you know, again, just screen printing. Basically, all that you need to do is is have a pattern in a in a mesh, um, and you effectively you, you drive a, a printing ink through the mesh so that it leaves an image of uh, of that mesh behind. Um, in our case, we would obviously be looking at the most efficient circuits but it does open up all sorts of weird possibilities as well where 
you know, we have in the past produced patterned solar cells, which are a little bit more visually attractive. And is it important to work with different kinds of organisations in terms of size and scale? You know, these smaller organisations, you say it's almost like an outreach thing, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think it is. And, uh, you know, one of the uh, really important parts of, of um, something like Sunrise is, you know, how do we get this from being an academic consortium uh, with some good ideas and a few demonstration projects into something which is widespread? And I think that that's where working with organisations of different size becomes really important. So, you know, um, certainly access into the Tata group within India is big in terms of opening doors. Um, we can certainly have an impact there by, um, by a shared voice of, of such a big organization. But in reality, on the ground, we, we then, I think in a, in a country particularly as vast as India, we would probably be looking to the sort of small to medium enterprises locally to produce some stuff themselves mm. um so experience of working and that's where the t-shirt idea is really nice you know if you can take a, a relatively small organization who who make t-shirts and then um upskill and uplift their ability to produce a new product then it's right at the heart of the kinds of communities which will be using the technology and that's a real key for that kind of widespread message. So if you do it with one, you then need to disseminate across. And I think that, again, we, we talked about um, uh, carbon footprint of travel earlier. That's why a lot of this needs to be locally sourced and, and done near the point of use. Sticking with that, and you have touched on this a couple of times, but you've, you've spoken about the need for responsible consumption and production. and as so often, this is actually a case of science and politics uh, colliding, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that that's a very, very important point. And, you know, we have to think about that with the materials we use. Um, we certainly don't want to end up in an issue where uh, all of these things are reliant on a, on a particular material that creates another issue further down the line. So... You know, um, there's lots of discussion around this with battery materials, for example. Um, if we were to use a material um, which is unsafe or difficult to get hold of, or increasingly uh, you can get it from an area where there's conflict, so we call them conflict materials, that for us is a big red flag which we would try and... Uh, and engineer ways of, of not using that material. But also thinking about, and this is where, again, a, a business element comes in, what do we do to recover our materials at the end of life so that rather than constantly mining things out of the ground, we can actually look at uh, what we would call urban mining, I guess, where, where we look at the resources that we've used in the past and how we can uh, employ them in, um, in future materials. And I know that you think that education and gender inequalities are very important in this whole story as well. Most definitely, yeah. Yeah, so I think um, education and actually, you know, and, and equalities across the board wherever there are minorities, but it, but it really, um, but gender is a huge issue globally. 
um, and is compounded in in uh, certain cultures and groups. Um, I think that um, what we would hope to do is is by producing sorts of um, projects that we do overseas is to develop an infrastructure where we can aid with education across the board as well. You know, I mean, naturally, if, if it comes to me, I'm going to talk about science and, uh, and engineering. Um, but actually, you know, there's lots of other things that, that, that we need to bring people up to. So things like access to justice and, and understanding the legal system. Those are all really important. But as I say, quite often it is um, young women that get left out. And that's for a variety of reasons. Um, uh, it's a very big topic, for example, within um, uh, the world of, of sanitation, is that just by improving access to sanitation, um, we can uh, we effectively can see more people participating in education for longer. The longer that they participate in education, um, the better they're potential outlook at the end so all of these things combine um, and as i say an intervention in one does tend to have knock-on effects in others as well in terms of the technology and of the future of energy are you optimistic because a cynic might say that in india for example uh, certain companies the government even are very good at making the right noises and saying the right things but actually my understanding about india for example would be that they are still rapidly opening coal-fired power stations I am optimistic, yeah, and uh, and I think there is um, there are issues, and the I think the issues are that the speed of growth is phenomenal, and at the moment, you know, we have limited toolkit in of of growth, and I think that this is where sustainable development goals generally come in, and these are important across the board, both overseas and and at home. Um, I think it is a little bit of a race. You know, we need to get it. We have a constant time pressure on us because we need to be able to develop these technologies and deploy them quickly enough that we have a realistic chance of deferring some of those large infrastructure projects. Um, but as I say, we, we will always have the fine balance where you don't want to hold back a developing nation either. Uh, from their ultimate goal of development. So I think I am optimistic and I think the pressure is on all of us actually to uh, uh, to develop not just the technologies but the, uh, the, the community involvement piece and the business models and everything that goes with it to enable deployment at the scale that's needed in the time that it's needed. People might be listening to you, particularly young people, and thinking that not only is the science that you're engaged with really interesting, but it is also, you know, doing good or you're trying to do good. So if people wanted to get into your line of work, how would you encourage them to do so? Well, I, I have, uh, you know, my own pathway, which uh, uh, was, again, for me personally, I, I studied uh, chemistry um, and uh, I went on to do a doctorate in material science. But I think ultimately... Anyone who's working in science and engineering at the moment will have or is increasingly likely to have sustainable development goals on their mind. So those sorts of, uh, those sorts of careers 
are really likely to to drive you in that direction. And it could be um, it could be the really unsurprising thing. Uh, so the really surprising areas as well. So you quite often see um, a lot of people wearing pin badges at the moment, which have the, the circle of pin badges with lots of little colours on them and. And if you don't know what they are, you probably overlook them, but they're actually, uh, they represent the sustainable development goals. And you see those being worn by, um, by scientists and engineers from everywhere. So um, large construction companies, automotive manufacturers, everyone has these goals on their mind at the moment. So if people want to do good, there's a, there's a really strong case that, um, that getting into science and engineering now uh, gives you an opportunity to um, uh, to be there at the right time. Ian, thank you very much. If you want to find out more about Ian's research, you can visit his staff profile at Swansea University's College of Science webpage or visit www.sunrisenetwork.org or visit www.m for mother, the, the number 2a, so that's one word, m2a.wales. To find out more about this podcast and Swansea University's research, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash research. In the next episode, we are joined by Dr. Emily Preedy to talk about her research into algae and minimising the effects waste fumes have on the environment. That's all from us today. Thanks for listening. And thank you again to our guest, Dr. Ian Mabbitt. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review. I'm Sam Blaxland, and that was Exploring Global Problems from Swansea University.